Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Gender, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host for this episode and for my first episode, I am have the pleasure to speak with Jerry T. Watkins III about his book, Queering the Redneck Riviera, Sexuality and the Rise of Florida Tourism. Well, Jerry T. Watkins III is the name and the cover of the book and the one that our listeners will look uh, up when they want to find it. But I know that you go by Jay Watkins. So Jay Watkins is a visiting assistant professor of history at the College of William and Mary. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So before we actually start talking about your book, uh, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey, and the paths and detours you took to become a historian. And what's your connection to the subject of this book? Sure. Um, Well, I grew up there in Panama City, Florida, uh, born and raised for the first, uh, really the first 21 uh, years of my life. I moved to Atlanta in 2001. And so the the subject is very much close to my heart. I, like I said, I grew up there in the area and realized I was gay in, in, in the early nineties, uh, which was a bit of a problem being a Southern Baptist. And, and my, my first gay bar experience was the fiesta room that I write about, uh, towards the end of the book. And so part of, part of how I came to the book was, was a, a journey to discover my own history, but I'll, we'll, we'll get to that, I'm sure. But I started, uh, I, I started pre-law, so I was not going to be a historian. I, I, I was going to be, I was going to be a lawyer, and so I was a pre-law major. I did uh, two years at community college there in Panama City, what is now Gulf Coast State College. It was community college back then, and then the family was moving to Atlanta, and I had finished that and was was a little aimless. I wasn't entirely sure I wanted, what I wanted to do at that moment. And so, you know, because Atlanta was, at least in my young gay mind, was sort of the, you know, the place to be for a young gay Southerner. And so moved with the family to Atlanta. I uh, went back to school in 2003, I believe. Yeah, 2003. And I was going to study marketing. I, I might, So I went back as a marketing major because I was, I was working... Uh, at a clothing store at the time, and I was going to work my way up the corporate ladder, and I was going to, you know, be a success and all of those. Um, but I, I realized about a semester, and, and no offense to any marketing majors out there or marketing people, uh, but I realized that it was not for me. That, you know, I had that that moment of if I'm going to spend 40 years doing something, then you know, what 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 can I do that I will love doing? And so I, that's when I went back to history. I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do with a history degree, but I knew I, I knew I loved the reading and the studying, you know, I was the, like, I I was the nerdy kid who at, you know, 10 and 11 is reading history books and, you know, much preferred to be uh, in my room reading uh, instead of out playing with other children my own age. And so I went back to study history and I, and I was lucky enough to have some really fantastic professors uh, there in undergrad. Uh, One in particular, Alicia Long, who wrote The Great Southern Babylon, 
uh, I took her history of sexuality course. And so that, that was when I realized not only, you know, d- d- like this is a valid uh, historical study. And so I, that, that course is what really set me on the path uh, to do what I, uh, to do what I do now. And, and, and made me really want to not just study this, but also teach it. You know, I said, I, like I said, I had some fantastic professors. And so I, I really got to see what being um, an activist historian, a people's historian, a really cool professor uh, was like. And so I made that decision in undergrad and, and knew I would have to go on to get a PhD. And so uh, did my master's there at Georgia State. And I, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to study. I was kind of interested in queer history in Atlanta. And my uh, undergrad thesis was about um, a gay magazine there in Atlanta and, and, and the ways that the editor used the space of the magazine to uh, do a lot of AIDS education and AIDS activism uh, there in the 80s. And, but whenever, I, when it, whenever it came time to my master's, and this is how I, uh, this is how I met John Howard. I was, you know, searching for something to do. I had read his book, Men Like That, A Southern Queer History, and in many ways it became my Bible in undergrad uh, and going into my master's and was, and and guided me uh, in what I was doing in, in the work in Atlanta. And and so I was headed to London for a conference, the Queer 50s International. This would have been about 2006, maybe. And my, uh, my MA advisor at the time, Cliff Kuhn, um, he, he said, Oh, I think John Howard is in London. I'll set up a meeting between the two of you. Uh, because of course they had known each other from their time in Atlanta. And so one fateful afternoon, I met John Howard in a central London gay bar. And we talked about work and about life and about, you know, sort of my studies and what I was interested in. And it was actually him. And it, I made an offhand comment that the, that the gay bar in Panama city had been there since the sixties, uh, since 1965. And, and his eyes got wide and he's like, you have to write about that because that is, uh, he said, that's fascinating. You have to write about your hometown. And so it was ultimately John Howard that convinced me or really sort of sold writing about my hometown, uh, to me. And. Well, as a transnational uh, scholar, I love this idea that you had to go to London to uh, find <laughs> your hometown. I'm very intrigued by book covers. So could you start off by describing the two images in the cover of your book and telling us how, why do you think they represent the story you're telling here? Absolutely. So the, the image on the top, the, the folks there on the beach, is a picture from the Emma Jones Society, which is in chapter uh, five, I believe. And I came across that picture. I was giving a talk a couple of years ago in Pensacola, and I, I made an offhand comment. I, I had text descriptions of some of the parties and that sort of thing. And I made an offhand comment of, God, wouldn't it be really great if there were photographs? And afterwards, this man walked up to me with three photo albums in his hand. He said, I think you might be interested in these. And sure enough, they were the photo albums of Ray and Henry Hillier uh, that they had given to Kurt a number of years ago. And so like a kid at Christmas, I, you know, flipping through these albums. And so that, that top image is from those, uh, is from those beach parties. And the, the bottom image is from the, um, state archives of Florida. And I, I think they do a good job of, you know, so the, you know, part of, part of the book is Florida welcomes you, but some exclusions apply. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, working out with the press and the design team there at the press, 
uh, I, I wanted to use some of the images, or at least one of the images from the Emma Jones photographs, to you know to to put us quote unquote back on the beach to requeer uh, the area as a tidal implied and 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 the that image in particular was one that didn't show any faces because I also wanted to be respectful of anybody's outness and you know issues around um, openness and that sort of thing and but I also wanted to put us you know back there physically you know queer bodies physically on the beaches. Uh, of North Florida and also, you know, and also tourism there, you know, what is more, what sums up the book more than a welcome station. Um, And so, so those two images seem to make the most sense for the cover. And how about the title? Can you explain the two main concepts that you're presenting here? What, where is the Redneck Riviera? And how do you use the term queer queering throughout the book, both as an adjective and as a verb? Absolutely. So the the Redneck Riviera, depending on who you ask, it can be it it, it can be that part of Florida from that the sort of northern Gulf Coast right below Alabama. Um, the scholarship on the Redneck Riviera, there's very little. There's there's me, and then there's uh, Harvey Jackson's The Rise and Decline of the Redneck Riviera. It can stretch all the way over to Alabama, Mississippi, uh, parts of New Orleans, but it's it's that part of the of the northern gulf coast that it got that nickname in this period i'm writing about the 40s 50s 60s as these new um newly mobile southerners are taking a vacation and they're coming to that part of florida alabama mississippi because it is cheaper than miami you know if you only have a week's vacation do you really want to spend two full days of that driving back and forth to miami and miami was you know was expensive at the time and so we see across this part of the south quick, you know, it, it, it's within six or seven hours drive. And so these, this entirely new class of automobile tourists, um, derisively give the area, the name that the redneck, uh, the redneck Riviera. And pretty quickly, the, the towns along the Gulf coast tried to distance themselves, uh, from that, uh, from that name sometimes successfully, sometimes not. So I use redneck Riviera as a, you know, to, to, to place the coast, that area in a specific moment in time in the fifties, uh, sixties and into the 1970s. And, and queering comes from, I was inspired by, um, Carol Mason's recent ish work, Oklahoma, uh, which is a phenomenal book. And she uses, she uses the word unqueering to talk about the variety of ways that queer people are erased. You know, so it's not just arresting people, but it is also, you know, putting those names on the paper. It is also things like um, the newspaper articles that I came across in Bay County. You know, the, the governor has plans to, you know, rid the state of homos. I think that's the actual title. Um, so it unqueering is that whole process. And so part of my mission in this book was to put queer folk back into that history really as an in, as an integral part of the growth of tourism on the Gulf Coast. And so I flipped um, Mason's word. So rather than unqueering, I am I am queering and requeering the uh, the Gulf Coast. And so I, I use that as a verb to to put all of us back. And and you know, much like many academics in my field, we we use queer to encompass all kinds of sexual and gender nonconformity that is beyond uh, the mainstream. I, I tried to be in the book itself. You readers might notice that I I go from homosexual, homophile, 
gay, lesbian, into more LGBTIQ, into queer. And I, I tried to, to keep with what people used about themselves, what was kind of the prevailing terminology at the time. And, and, and so queer appears much less at the start of the book, unless I'm talking specifically about this kind of academic use of queer and queering or unqueering. And then later on towards the end of the book, you know, as we get into the epilogue and into the nineties, I, I use it more frequently. Uh, but I, I tried to keep, I, I tried to let people identify themselves and, you know, and so queer is used kind of sporadically through the book in that way. I think that might've been one of the hardest parts uh, in the editing process was getting all of that uh, just right. Yeah, to me, your title very uh, perfectly captures not only the story that's told in the book, but also the book's project, as you mentioned, of, of queering this space. But in order for you to tell us how it was queered, you first contextualize your, your, your narrative by showing us the attempts to unqueer it as you were uh, talking uh, in a minute a minute ago. So you show us, for instance, in the, in the first chapter, how the Sunshine State... Right was, as you note, a carefully constructed, tightly managed, and heavily policed concept. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what you mean by that, and how does it fit in this context of post-war capitalist expansion? Absolutely. So I was, I was, in many ways, inspired by um, the postcards that used the title, the full title in quotes, open quote, the sunshine state, end quote. And thinking about the this this difference between, you know, what is being projected to tourists, what do tourists see when they arrive, and what is the kind of support structure that you know has to that, that it, you know that supports this kind of image. And I, I started to whenever I started framing it in those terms in my mind, I I, I was noticing, you know, that the articles in the paper about you know residents must you know, do their part to keep visitors coming back year and year, whether it's picking up trash, whether it is being friendly, whether it is, you know, helping tourists on their way, you know, if somebody stops and asks you for directions. And so the, you know, so not just governments and local municipalities advertising that their beaches are the best, but the, the, the ways that newspapers and chambers of commerce are enlisting the entire citizenry to, help support this image so that so that tourist expectations so that tourists come back year on year and you know and and part of post-war capitalist expansion uh, there's a quote that I use in the book that you know that if you know if Florida was a sellable product then governor Leroy Collins was its number one salesman and he says uh, later on that the that that you know formerly Florida you only had to compete with California, but now, you know, here we are in the fifties and we're having to compete with, you know, almost every state in the union is, you know, trying to attract tourists. So how do we as Florida continue to bring visitors back year on year on year? The, the, the natural beauty of the beaches does a lot of that work, but, you know, but how can we as a state continue to get our share of that market? And so talking about competition for tourism and so, that's the key, uh, at least in my mind, to understanding Florida in this post-war capitalism moment, the moment this sort of very unique, the, the competition was increasing. And so how do we maintain and you know, combine that with, it's the 50s, this politics of exposure, hunting for communists, 
Um, the Johns Committee that I write about quite frequently and Stacey Brockman writes about in her Communists and Perverts Under the Palms and the ways that this particular committee and anti-communist discourses and anti-civil rights discourses, let's not forget that Florida was heavily segregated at this time. You know, there were, there were, there were only, there were very few beach spots that were even open to black tourists for part of the year. Uh, but for the most part, this was a heavily segregated uh, part of Florida. It is still the deep South. And so all of those, you know, it, all of those are going on at the same time and, and trying to manage the reputation. And, and so the, you know, part of, part of what I write about is that queer people, much like prostitutes and gamblers and drinkers and civil rights activists are, are, are useful in these reputation management campaigns. It, it, looking over the paper, sometimes it seems like at any time your city needs a boost of some good publicity of, you know, look at how safe we look at how safe we're making the area. They go after any of those groups that I just named. And so for me, that, that was part of in, not just enlisting the citizenry in this competition, but also, you know, at every level of the state enforcing or trying to support or manage or police uh, this vision of, quote, uh, the Sunshine State. So this process of unqueering the region was connected, right, to the civil rights movement backlash and anti-communism. Absolutely. The, the process of unqueering, you know, as as gay, as gay folk, as queer folk are becoming more visible, you know, so there was Stonewall in 69, there are the annual reminders in Philadelphia in 65, Miami has a growing uh, gay community the the Johns Committee has turned their attention to uh, liberal pr- professors and homosexuals in the education system, and so people are becoming more and more and more aware of "quote unquote" the homosexual problem and queer people in general. But can you explain uh, just a little bit more what the Johns Committee was and the the central role it plays in in this process, but also on your research as a, a crucial source of information? Absolutely. So the Johns Committee began its life in. Um, 57, the, you know, so Charlie Johns, state senator, one-time governor, went to the legislature, and, and part, of, part of the response, or part of the Southern response to the Brown v. Board of Education decision, were states trying to figure out ways to legally, legally-ish, um, slow or block integration. And the Johns Committee, you know, they, they went to the legislature and asked for, asked for money because, um, the you know so he's trying to trying to prove that the NAACP is a communist front organization because if he can prove that the NAACP is a front for communism then quote the good people of Florida will want this nonsense stopped end quote and so they set about trying to link the NAACP with communism and they ultimately failed because the NAACP is not a communist front organization um, there's been some phenomenal scholarship uh, done on done on that and. So by about 59, and this story might be apocryphal, but Charlie John's son comes home from either Thanksgiving or spring break from the University of Florida and makes an offhand comment about all of the queer professors on the faculty at UF. And Charlie John's now has a now has a new enemy to go after. And so the committee then turns its attention to the educational system and the way that communists have, because of course the linking of communism and sexual deviancy um, as they would have called it, homosexuality, queerness, uh, is well established by the end of the 1950s. Uh, David Johnson writes about the Lavender Scare earlier in the decade and the ways that, you know, 
homosexual people, queer folk were you know, automatically seen as security risks. And so it did not take much for Senator Johns to convince the legislature to allow them to go after this quote unquote menace. And so they became an integral part of that process, whether they were helping local law enforcement to, um, so the, the arrests I, that I talk about in the book in Panama City, those were you know, they were the local, the local sheriff was assisted by the Johns committee. Many of the sources I use come from the Johns committee. Uh, in the late nineties, uh, Jim Schnur sued under the freedom of information act to have their records opened. And so much of the source material comes from, or I, I based a lot of what I, uh, what I do on, on their records, these, you know, heart wrenching interrogations, you know, oftentimes conducted early in the morning and very rarely with counsel present, um, and so they provided this, uh, this kind of roadmap. So they were essential in unqueering because they served as sort of a state level, almost clearinghouse of information for local law enforcement to, you know, they might, or in the case of Panama city, the Johns committee informed the sheriff's department of this quote unquote problem at the public restroom and in other instances, um, municipalities would write to the write to the committee and you know say can you please help us or can you give us information on and so the Johns Committee really became sort of the state level central clearinghouse of all of all unqueering happening there really fifty nine to about uh, sixty four. So you you identify October nineteen sixty one as an important turning point. Uh, how was that? Why? Yeah, so the in October of 1961, there was a there was a series of arrests that happened at a public toilet in downtown Panama City, and that was, and you know, made the front page of the paper for really every day uh, in October, and that serves as this sort of moment in uh, in the area's history, where you know it, it's on the front page of the paper. It becomes uh, for. Uh, for Tom Baker, who I write about, it becomes his sort of moment where he's forced uh, really out of the closet and forced to live openly. And so after after that moment, the it becomes harder to hide, if you will. And and that's that's just a few years before the Emma Jones Society starts hosting their beach parties. So it's this moment where there's kind of a forced recognition of queer folk there. Uh, on the Gulf Coast in a way that they had not before. And so we see over the course of the next decade, um, or really over the course of the next uh, several decades, this increasing level of openness and outness, really, as we would now conceive it. Uh, they wouldn't have necessarily conceived it as that way. But as we would now conceive this increasing level of outness happening there on the Gulf Coast, really after October of 61. And, and it also served as this moment where the citizenry in general are talking more about homosexuality and the, you know, many of them are talking uh, you know, about it in a pejorative sense and the prob the quote unquote problem in their midst, but people are talking about it more. And there's a recognition that, Oh my goodness, these people are here and what is to be done about it. So yeah, it serves as a sort of turning point moment where you can't ever really put the genie back in the bottle. They're here. And what is everybody going to do about it? Yeah, your, your chapter on cruising, I really enjoyed reading that because um, as it, it talks about the role of the different means of transportation, such as cars, the buses, even uh, boats. And it does something that uh, the rest of the book does also that I really, uh, you know, appreciate. 
is that it clearly places your story in a broader national, local context, but also tells us these touching, very personal and f- stories with really fascinating characters. Uh, where do your stories come from? The John's Committee, Oral Histories? Uh, many of them come from the John's Committee. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted, you know, part of, you know, part of what I'm doing is trying to recover and put real people back in this area. You know, for the people who lived this, this was not an abstract or interesting philosophical discussion. This was their, their real life and they, they lived uh, this history. And so, so I wanted to, I wanted to ground the reader in these very real histories in these very real stories. And so a lot of the work or a lot of the stories come from the John's committee records, you know, unfortunately, or um, you, the, the records are redacted. And so many of the names or all of the names associated with the John's committee stories are made up. I, I gave, I had to give people names. It, it seemed easier for the reader to name these characters if I was telling their stories. Um, others came from oral history. I interviewed a number of a uh, number of people across the Gulf Coast. So some oral history, some from the Johns Committee, um, some from yeah, oral history and the Johns Committee. I, I started to think where else like, the the um, every once in a while, like I would like I would pick up something in the paper, but for the most part, uh, the Johns Committee and oral history. Yeah, you really bring those those stories to life, and and it also makes the the book uh, more, uh, you know, uh, accessible to people who might not be academics. Mm. So I, I really enjoyed those stories. You uh, and and it's really interesting how right how as you mentioned these efforts to unqueer the space, create the records that allow you to tell the story and then queer it. Exactly. You mentioned here that uh, interracial cruising complicated these boundaries of race and class. How did that happen? Um, it again, it kind of depends on. It's very momentarily specific. In the early part of the book, many of these spaces are segregated, and you know, so for instance, the the restrooms in the bus station in Tallahassee would have been segregated, and the Johns Committee either didn't care or wasn't paying attention to. Uh, the restrooms for uh, the segregated restrooms for uh, non-white passengers, and so the I'm I'm sure it happened, um, but the and and I make an argument there in in that part of the book that given the increased surveillance on black bodies in these newly integrated spaces, uh, such as in your lunch counters and that sort of thing, that if interracial cruising had happened, I I, I would assume at least that it would show up more in the records. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, in, in Panama city, the, according to Tom Baker, the restroom there downtown was, was white only. Uh, there were no facilities, uh, for, um, for, for African-Americans there. And so that was only a, that was a white only, uh, cruising ground. It was torn down pretty quickly thereafter the, thereafter the incident. Uh, but when we get to say the Emma Jones society, they very intentionally, uh, created a multiracial space, uh, with the beach parties, um, and so we see increasingly over the over the course of the 1950s and 1960s these these two worlds intermingling and you know going from you know so I use in the cruising section the you know, these white the white these white men coming into um, other parts of Pensacola and and you know, this this almost kind of icky access to or supposed access or assumed access and then the ways that um, 
with the Emma Jones Society, this new kind of outness and openness creates these interracial spaces instead of these segregated spaces where white uh, people are coming into um, black neighborhoods. And so it really kind of, it opens up increasingly over the 60s. Well, if our listeners are wondering, we will talk a lot about the Emma Jones Society in a minute. <laughs> But uh, as we progress in the book, you show us this transition, right, from a closeted economies to more open identity-based queer spaces. How did, does this happen in the particular context of the, the Gulf Coast of the U.S.? And what were the dynamics of race, class, and gender as these queer folk began claiming their space in the quote-unquote, sunshine state. Um, absolutely. So this, um, so the where I get the, from, you know, closet economy to liberation economy, um, was a scholar, Jeffrey Escoffier, I think is how his name is pronounced. And and it, it became this interesting way to conceive of, you know, from this very closeted existence to a much more open, what we would now call a liberation existence, you know, into, into the 1970s. And, Increasingly, over over this period in time, you know, like I just mentioned, with race, spaces are becoming more racially integrated. Oftentimes, those are intentional creations. Um, so, like the fiesta was um, was integrated both legally and also, you know, physically. You know, all all kinds of people were partying at the fiesta in Panama City. The Emma Jones Society was creating the were intentionally creating these uh, racially and gender integrated spaces. There were lots and lots and lots of women. Um, lesbians and not um, who showed up to these parties. There were uh, there were bars in Pensacola. So there's the five o'clock hi ho club that I mentioned. Um, that was there was there were there were a group of women who most likely lesbians. Um, they were partying there at that club. So as you know, as the expectations of women and placed on uh, women opened up and shifted and changed. Um, and, and the Air Force, I think, is a big is a big part of this as well, because the Air Force brought a lot of young single women to the area. And so they are they are claiming space in um, in a variety of ways uh, in in the Gulf Coast and and over really over the course of the over the course of the decade. So the Fiesta serves as this sort of out space, you know, from about 1965, it was opened as a gay bar and then became definitively a quote-unquote gay bar in 1968 with the uh, with that fight I describe, um, and then the bars that open in Pensacola, uh, the Quiet Village, uh, Robbie's Yum Yum Tree, which opened on the beach. And so the, these spaces, they become spaces for queer people to be themselves. You, you may not be out anywhere else in your life, but if you can go to the fiesta on a Friday night, then you can you can be gay there for, you know, a few hours. And so There's this sort of tentative um, openness going from the, the the secrecy surrounding cruising, surrounding anonymous sex, to the availability of more out open spaces. If one wanted to partake of that, one could continue to you know cruise anonymously if one wanted to. But there there is a there is a slowly growing economy based in what we now think of as outness, you know, being openly uh, openly gay or lesbian. Well, finally, uh, you know, uh, I need to confess that I've been obsessed with this since I read an interview with you a few years ago, and I think you were still working on your PhD research. 
Tell us about the Emma Jones Society. Who, oh. what was Emma Jones and what role they it played in the creation of what is now one of the most important events in the country's LGBTQ calendar? Absolutely. So the Emma Jones Society. So Ray and Henry Hillier uh, moved to Pensacola in the mid-50s. They were... Um, They were a couple. Uh, they were together for the whole of their lives. Um, uh, they they died in 2009 and 2010, respectively. Unfortunately, they were together uh, right there to the end. But so they moved to Pensacola, and to hear their friends tell it, they were, you know, they're very open and they're very warm and loving. And there's these. They're not party people, but they are very social people. There's. I think it was Ray was described as kind of the social butterfly, and was you know always having friends and dinner parties and that sort of thing. And in the mid 50s, there are more publications happening and they wanted a way to access these. They, they, they knew who they were and, and, and they wanted to access like one, the Mattachine Review, a variety of other uh, publications, queer publications, thanks to the new sort of print capitalism happening there at mid-century. But it was also still illegal-ish, um, though technically legal, uh, postmasters would, would continue to censor mail Um, and put people on a list. And frequently, you know, if you end up on a list, then the FBI is going to show up at your house or your job and inform your employer that you have, you're suspected of receiving obscenity and you're probably going to be fired. So it was a very dangerous time to be sending uh, queer materials through the mail. And so they hit on this idea to hire a post office box with a female name, because who's going to suspect a woman of receiving obscene material? And depending on who is telling the story, they kind of go back and forth about, you know, trying to decide on a name. Emma Jones is not a real person, but they, they, they pick the name Emma and I'm probably going to mess up the quote here a little bit, you know, Emma be, or Jones, because it was such a common name, Emma or Jones, because it was so common and Emma, because it was such an awful name. My apologies to anybody named Emma out there. Um, but you know, they, they wanted something that that they thought was as nondescript as it could possibly be. Because who is going to, you know, like I said, suspect fine, upstanding Emma Jones of receiving obscene material? And that proved to be correct. Um, and so about once a month, uh, a female friend of theirs, I, I've, I've heard differing. I, so it could have been a couple of female friends. I've heard uh, different people say uh, different names of who Emma actually was, the woman who would go and pick up the mail. We would go and pick up the mail and bring it back. Um, and around their coffee table, they would share whatever the magazines, the books, uh, films, anything, uh, kind of a book club uh, of sorts. And by about 1964, um, you know, they had friends all over the South, uh, had friends all over the country, really. And, you know, the people are already coming to the beach for a 4th of July weekend around the 4th of July holidays. And so they hit on the idea to have a beach party. And they send out invitations. Um, I think it was, I think it might've been Kurt who, who said that, that year they, they, they handmade 25 to 50 invitations. They cut stuff out of magazines and pasted stuff and, and invited friends to come down to their house, uh, to Pensacola beach for this sort of big gay weekend. And the first of Emma, the Emma Jones society beach parties, because it was always quote unquote, Miss Emma sending out the invites. And so Emma Jones had been receiving these publications and now Miss Emma Uh, was inviting uh, folks to the beach. And about 100 people showed up that first year. And, and so then they hit on the idea of, you know, why don't we make this a yearly thing? 
And so the next year they sent out, I think, 100 invitations and two or 300 people showed up at the beach. By about 1969, the, um, there are hundreds of people showing up on the beach every year for 4th of July. Um, and that's about 1969 or some of the pictures I use in the book. Best we can tell the picture on the cover is probably 1969, uh, just kind of given the way they arranged their photo album. I'm, I'm assuming it's 69. And but by about 1970, the military police have started sniffing around. The local police have started sniffing around because it doesn't really matter how far you are from the family section of the beach. A thousand gay men and lesbians partying on the beaches of Pensacola with a drag show are going to draw attention. And so the the parties then moved inside. And that's when it really became an entire weekend convention. Uh, they booked the hotel as a convention so that they could get access to uh, other spaces in the hotel. And they, they, they completely sold out the San Carlos Hotel and booked several other hotels to capacity. You know, by about 1971, there were 2,000 people, um, two to 3,000 people there at the Emma Jones Society weekends um, and increased, uh, every year thereafter. So what started out as just, uh, what started out as a book club to share information and to access these sort of larger, um, global discourses really became by about 1964, 65, or evolved into a, this sort of, this campy way to bring a bunch of friends together and have a gay party to, by the end of the 1960s, uh, Ray and Henry, uh, there's a quote I use, um, you know, the, the 4th of July was intentional you know, because this is our fourth too. you know, thank God we're in America where we're, you know, we have the freedom to be gay. I'm sort of paraphrasing there a little bit, but it became, it was explicitly political. So the picture I use of Abe and, you know, George Washington there in a tender embrace, all of that was part of, part of making this comment on the 4th of July that, you know, we are Americans too. And that, you know, that comes out of the civil rights movement and the, you know, the assertion of Americanness, the assertion of, you know, one's rights, uh, under the Constitution, 19, uh, the 1965, the annual reminders out of Philadelphia. So queer folk asserting their rights as Americans uh, was not unprecedented. And so the Emma Jones Society started as a campy beach party, continued to be a very campy beach party convention, uh, but became much more political by about 68, 69, 70, somewhere around in there. And then as the drag shows become ever more elaborate, those become more and more political as well. So there's the you know the solidarity with uh, the occupation of Wounded Knee uh, that I uh, that I I use one of the photos there in the book, and you know what you know in, in sort of flamboyant campy style. Of course, there's Gold LeMay um, because it's 1971, and there has to be Gold LeMay. Um, and so, though they though they are political and they are making uh, these these I think very important political statements, they're having fun doing it. Yeah, I was about to ask. Uh, I love the descriptions of the shows. Uh, do you have any favorite performance or a particular event that you came across during the research? Um, I think my favorite would have to be the ending of the show. Uh, every year they ended the show with, and and looking over the photo albums I now have, uh, which are good, which this summer will be uh, deposited at the University of West Florida. Um, to, to keep them there in Pensacola. I'm um, looking over the, you, you can tell the evolution of the Statue of Liberty. So, you know, there are these great textual descriptions of you know, the Statue of Liberty gets wheeled around the ballroom to the, to several patriotic songs and throwing out roses. And it's this hugely emotional, you know, close of the event. And um, the, uh, the quote I use about the older gentleman who, 
uh, was always uh, present there at the uh, at the Emma Jones conventions, and and so the the closing of the of the conventions became my favorite just because of how how emotional everybody got and how, you know, for, for, you know, for a number of these people, it was their, it was their weekend where they could be gay and they could be American and they could participate in this ritual uh, of citizenship as gay citizens. Um, And it, it just sounds like a ton of fun, you know, watching, you know, these were strapping young sailors wheeling this, you know, drag statue of Liberty throwing roses at everybody. So I think that that probably would have been my uh, favorite, though the um, the so the tribute to America, uh, where the signing of the Declaration of Independence is a cruisy gay bar, that might have been a close second. Yes, uh, you make us all want to go to the shows. You, you already sort of explained this, but um, let's uh, conclude. But tell me how the Redneck Riviera becomes a gay Riviera, but the role of pink money, or as you say, the flaunting of gay capital, what role does that play in the process? Absolutely. So the Emma Jones Society parties are shut down, uh, officially unqueered, uh, 73, 74. And some people describe it as, as you know, the rest of the 70s as this very dark time in Pensacola and gay folk are afraid to come there and, and nobody like nobody's gay on the Gulf Coast to hear some of my narrators describe it. However, that is not entirely true because some of the bar, you know, the bars remain open. The Fiesta remains open. There is the article in 77, um, the cruise, the guide to gay Atlanta. You know, it's hot, hot, hot this summer on the gay Gulf Coast. And so the gay thinking of the gay Gulf Coast uh, really came from the title of that article. And and so over the course of the 70s, there's less activity. But by the early 80s, queer folk are coming now on Memorial Day. Um, some people say it was Ray and Henry who invited their friends down for, for Memorial Day weekend. Um, uh, one of the other narrators, Tyler, um, says it was actually him and, his, him and his partner that invited friends down for Memorial Day. And that throughout the 70s, there was this, there was like, there was the Memorial Day parties and the Labor Day parties. And Ray and Henry hosted the Memorial Day weekend and Tyler and his partner hosted the Labor Day weekend to sort of kind of bookend the summer. Um, the Labor Day weekend um, sort of decreased over the years, but Memorial Day became uh, this big gay event. And by the early 90s, it is, you know, it is on the circuit calendar. It's one of the largest uh, queer events in the country. And um, up until the late 90s, early 2000s, it was. You know, there were tens of thousands of, uh, queer folk coming to Pensacola, and so in the uh, in the eighties, the uh, the city council once again, um, there's too much the the gayness the queerness is too much for some people. So just like Emma had become too big, and the parties associated with Emma had become too big, once again the parties are becoming too big, and the city council city councilman Doug Prophet is you horrified that this has become a tourist destination for gay folk and makes that statement. And then the mayor supports him. And one of the men I interviewed for the project, Steve Hatch, who owned the, the just for us pride store in downtown Pensacola. Uh, he was, he was upset. He was incensed by the city councilman. And so he, you know, to hear Steve tell it, he ran down to the printer and had welcome to Pensacola USA's gay Riviera printed on literally anything he could order to get it printed on. Um, but he made a spelling mistake, and so it kind of it became the Riviera um, instead of the Riviera. And so, and and over this over the subsequent years, they kept that mistake because it was fun and because it was uh, it was kind of a joke. 
And but but it, but it made the point that you know there are tens of thousands of people coming down for this weekend and spending a lot of money. And and in that same moment, there was the there's so the local gay press, uh, Christopher Street South Quarterly, is urging people. You know, if you're paying by check, write gay money on there. Uh, Steve Hatch sold the stamps at his store that said gay money, so you could stamp all of your cash with gay money. Uh, he was visited by the FBI, and he reminded the FBI that it is not a crime to sell the stamp. He did not actually stamp any of the money, uh, and so they had to leave. Uh, if you're paying by credit card, write on your credit card, slip gay money, so that there is a very visible queer, like like here is how much money is circulating in the local economy from uh, gay travelers, from lesbian travelers, from queer uh, queer folk traveling. And so the, the, the big difference between the death of Emma and the Memorial Day festivities was the, the ways that... So, that, that pink capital, the amount of money being brought in made it, and there, there were a number of comments. I only you know, printed a few in the book that, you know, business owner after business owner, after business owner, you know, hit back against the city council and said, you know, these are well-behaved tourists. They are spending a lot of money, leave them alone. And so part of, you know, part of the, that, you know, yes, there was the general more openness of society. There was a more acceptance, but part of it was also, you know, it was it was one of the largest tourist weekends of the year, and the recognition of that kind of spending power really opened up a lot of space for uh, queer tourists there in the eighties and nineties. Yes, uh, I, I I always thought that uh, the um, the stamp was sort of like an urban legend. I was happy to hear that it was true. No, and and Pensacola's Gay Film Festival stamped is named after that event yeah so that's yeah so if you yeah so they, they still call their film festival stamped and they did it as an homage uh to steve and to the other queer folk there in the region stamping their money with gay money and showing a very visible uh symbol of queer folks there and so i, I yeah the the stamp was a very real thing and had a had a huge impact on the openness uh, and the queer press and had a huge impact on queering uh, the Redneck Riviera. Like I say there at the end, they did the queering. I just told the story. <laughs> well, to conclude our conversation, and since this is a podcast about books, I wanted to ask you three final questions. The first one is what book you wish or hope someone will write next about your subject? I know there's only so much we can cover in one book. Uh, was there something you came across, but you did feel like you couldn't develop further, but you wish someone else would write a book on? Um, absolutely. I, I wish, you know, so there was a, there was a particular story that did not make it into the book um, about this young man, James Augier, who was confined to the state hospital in 64 to 67. Um, and so I have this letter from him to one magazine and he just he, like he, he didn't really fit anywhere in the book and I tried to make him fit a couple of times and the reviewers all said this doesn't fit you should take it out um, and so I, I would love somebody to write about the, the mental health system in Florida there and, and there has been some work done uh, Jennifer uh, Terry's book I believe um, she has done a lot of that work but there were a couple of sort of these really tantalizing um, instances of queer folk being sent there to the state hospital, which is right above Tallahassee. So it is quite literally within 
uh, my with the ge- within the geographic bounds of my study. But no matter what I did, I couldn't I couldn't get access to uh, what I felt were enough sources to uh, to really include that. So I I wish somebody would do that. I I am hopeful that somebody is able to get access to lesbian communities because the the lesbian story um, was one that I didn't get act no, and you know I, I kind of feel like this always happens in research but I was I was doing an oral history a little bit after the book and it was a bit too late to kind of go off and start research um we were flipping through a magazine and uh, this gentleman was like oh that's and he pointed to an advert for um a this a very secretive women's organization um that had been on the gulf coast for a number of years and uh, like I said by that point it was it was too late to try to too late in the publishing process to go off and do new research. And so I hope somebody writes the writes women into this story and also uh, the African-American story as well, because I, you know, like I explained in the introduction, I couldn't quite get into any of those uh, communities. And so some, I, I really hope somebody is, um, is able to do that research there on the Gulf coast. Yeah, and I, and I would love to read those. So my second book club question is, I know that you've uh, read a ton of stuff, uh, secondary sources for this project, but was there a particular book that inspired or you feel informed querying the Redneck Riviera? Um, John Howard's Men Like That, A Southern Queer History, is, you know, still, it is still one of the most influential books in my life. Um, Carol Mason's Un- or Oklahoma, uh, is also, um, I think, me- was methodologically the most useful in thinking about queering and uh, and unqueering. And you know, for anybody else interested in uh, queer Florida, Stacey Brockman's Communist Under Communist and Perverse Under the Palms and Julio Capo's Welcome to Fairyland are two are two other good Florida uh, queer history books. Mm-hmm. My final question would be: What what are you working on next? Uh, I'm, I'm currently working on a queer theater project. I was, I was inspired uh, a couple of years ago. I saw a musical in London, Yank, a World War II love story, which in some ways is kind of, it, it reminds me a lot of if you set Alan Barabay's coming out under fire to music, uh, they, the, the writers, uh, did a lot of re- archival research and oral histories and put together this musical that is fabulous. And so it got me thinking about the ways we tell our stories. You know, we don't learn our culture in school. We don't learn our culture at home often. We don't learn our culture in church. And so theater has long been a way for queer culture to transmit. And so think, I, I'm currently, I'm in the very early stages of just gathering all of the queer theater stuff that I can. But I, I'm I'm envisioning either a, a book about gay musicals or gay theater in general. Uh, but right now I'm researching queer theater. And, but, but this very specific post 60s, a kind of out queer theater, you know, to use, um, you know, theater that is by us, about us, for us, to use uh, Du Bois's phrase about black theater. But yeah, so the, it's, a, it's a kind of out theater. That, that's what I'm researching at the moment, which has led me in some fascinating directions. Um, Atlanta had a scene uh, in the 80s. And so I'm, it, it, I, I'm still very much in the South. Uh, but much more into theater and this kind of cultural transmission um, at the moment. Well, that sounds fascinating. And I'm I'm really uh, looking forward to reading some of your new stuff. Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you.
And to our listeners, thank you for uh, listening to this episode of New Books in Gender. I just spoke to Jay Watkins, but on the book, it's Jerry T. Watkins III uh, about his book, Queering the Redneck Riviera. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time. <laughs>